Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we study authoritarian behavior around the world and try to distill lessons for anyone interested in their defense of freedom. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and in this episode, I talk with Iyad al-Baghdadi about a little-noticed facet of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The fact that it has pushed a widening wedge between the Gulf monarchies of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and their Western allies. <laughs> Hey Ed. Hey Ahmed. So we've been watching the Ukraine crisis unfold for the last month and uh, seeing the crimes Russia's committing, but we've also been picking up on something quite unusual at the same time, which is the reaction of Gulf states, specifically Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to the Ukraine invasion and how it's uh, straining their relationship with the US in new and unusual ways, I think. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting here is that we kind of predicted uh, this a few months ago, uh, mainly because of our disinformation monitoring. So uh, I believe it was a few days before the actual invasion that we had uh, put together a report um, and of course, this report basically is, is, is private information, but uh, um, we predicted that uh, uh, those two countries, and especially, specifically um, uh, Saudi Arabia, will use this as an opportunity to uh, to launch kind of a, an, a, you know, an oil war. I don't want to call it, it's not really much of a war right now, but essentially use this uh, situation for both economic leverage and political leverage. And this is exactly what we've seen happening. Uh, and we thought that this is worth uh, a deep dive on the Arab Tariq Manual uh, because a lot of people have, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen it on my timeline on Twitter, for example, a lot of people are confused. Uh, they're like, wait, these these countries are basically U.S. proxies. Um, and, you know, like the U.S. tells them to jump and they, they ask how high. Uh, what is happening now? Uh, and, of course, uh, a lot of this is based upon uh, perceptions that people have had for a very long time they haven't really updated uh, the times have changed uh, these countries have changed and the world is changing uh, and so we thought that it's it's uh, it's uh, it's worth having a conversation about this yeah so to loop back for context I'm not really sure how far back to go for context because you could start with the petrodollar system itself and the fact that for decades there's been this US-Saudi alliance in which Saudi Arabia and all of the Gulf countries price oil in dollars um, and basically sell that in exchange for both equipment and US guarantees of protection, military protection. Um, and then there's this whole economic system in which they use the proceeds of that oil to invest in the US and buy US treasuries to prop up the US government to strengthen its military might and enable it to better protect them. But basically, the Russian war on Ukraine comes at a particularly precarious moment economically because the world's just getting over the coronavirus, uh, you know, lockdown uh, policies and dealing with the fallout from that. And we're having really high inflation across the world. Uh, the price of everything is getting more expensive. And of course, energy is very directly connected to that because when the price of energy goes up, your price of transporting all goods goes up. Um, so you see that, you know, in the price of living. Um, and this is uh, causing some political tension in Western democracies. Um, it's expected to get a lot worse before it gets better. And then all of a sudden, one of the largest energy producers in the world, Russia, 
um, abruptly declares war on a neighbor and invades. Um, and in the light of that, the world's looking at what they can do to, you know, fight back. And one of the major things is sanctions. And sanction, uh, Russia has been sanctioned very heavily, but, um, you know, there's a part of that which Europe is particularly unwilling to do, which is um, energy sanctions, because especially Germany is uh, extremely dependent on Russian energy. Um, so as you have Russia being heavily sanctioned, you have a lot of countries looking for where they can get their energy, um, you know, alternative sources, and the price of energy spiking. Um, and there was an article not too long ago, which uh, basically said that Joe Biden was, um, this is an article in Axios, and it said Biden's advisors were weighing um, a, a trip to Saudi Arabia in order to do some diplomacy and try to get concessions on oil supplies. And uh, the basic idea here is that um, they're in an extraordinary situation. Um, Russia's invasion has kind of scrambled everyone's uh, foreign policies and the US is having to reorder its priorities and potentially even, you know, a lot was made of uh, the Biden administration's so-called emphasis on human rights. And suddenly they're scrambling to uh, have calls with Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela um, uh, talking about, you know, possibly getting Venezuelan oil, talking about Saudi Arabia. And then something really strange happens, which is, uh, whilst all this is happening, Saudi Arabia doesn't show any interest in actually going ahead with that and repairing relations. I mean, let's let's uh, uh, take it a step back to before, um, you know, before this crisis. I mean, what was the status quo before this crisis? Uh, as we know, Saudi Arabia is, you know, uh, an oil superpower. I mean, there are some countries which have uh, such a big uh, hold on the market, such a big, such a big uh, portion of the market, that they're able to, uh, you know, uh, of course, either by themselves or uh, along with other, uh, you know, with other allies, uh, they can stabilize the market. You know, they can make the market go up or down. Um, and Saudi Arabia has, for forty years, also has uh, ha has also been very skilled at this game. I mean, they know how to do it. And it's also notable that, technically speaking, they're a swing producer. So they have a lot of capacity that they can turn on and off at short notice. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's also that it's low-cost production. Uh, uh, unlike, for example, Venezuelan oil, which is, which is uh, you know, per barrel more expensive to, to dig out in the first place. Um, so as a result, the Saudis, uh, you know, have both this, the capacity and they have the, the you know, they, they have the extra supply and they have the capacity and the know-how to to you know to to stabilize the the markets. In the past, uh, as you mentioned, you know, in your in your introduction uh, to the context, uh, there was this uh, you know agreement uh, based upon this alliance between uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States and other Western countries, whereby you know Saudi Arabia would stabilize the markets on behalf of the world, but also on behalf of the West. Um, and in return, Saudi Arabia, of course, had these security guarantees from the West. Uh, the idea is this is a mutual uh, and kind of unconditional. I don't want to say unconditional. Nothing's really unconditional in uh, in uh, in politics, uh, but it's kind of an institutional. Maybe institutional is the better word here. It's an institutional relationship whereby uh, Saudi Arabia can always rely upon the West for security guarantees. Uh, the West, of course, being uh, most importantly the United States. 
uh, and uh, the United States and the rest of the West can rely upon Saudi Arabia for stabilizing uh, the, the oil supplies. Here is where, where things get weird, uh, because this is, of course, a crisis. This is an energy crisis. And for the first time, you see uh, the Gulf oil producers, instead of playing the normal role, uh, which assumes that, you know what, you, you protect us and we're going to make sure that you're taken care of, uh, they go a, a different way. And this is most important when you consider that uh, it's not that the United States uh, withdrew its security guarantees to the, to the UAE or Saudi Arabia. I mean, this, it still uh, has these security guarantees in place and it still uh, is very supportive of these countries, uh, whether it be it you know, politically or militarily. Uh, and it still considers them, of course, strong and important allies. It is them uh, which, of course, we have to remind, are the weaker part in this in this relationship. It's, of course, a relationship with a superpower, with uh, the United States and with the West. Uh, it is them who decide to change this relationship. And uh, the, whole, the whole point of this conversation now is really exploring why and how and what are the, uh, um, what are the consequences of that. Uh, because this is such a, I mean, you hinted to this in your, in your introduction, Ahmed, but because this is such a, you know, this is, this is a conversation that can be taken uh, in any direction, I'm going to start by giving you uh, very quickly my impression about why this is not a good idea from the point of view of, let's say, Saudi Arabia. Um, essentially, this is them, especially, of course, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is the main player here. I mean, Mohammed bin Zayed of, Saudi, of, of the United Arab Emirates is also going along with it. But it seems that Mohammed bin Salman, this is more sensitive for him. Uh, this is at least uh, our analysis, even based upon disinformation analysis. But it seems that this trades off short-term gain, be it financial gain, you know, keep in mind that, yeah, they are making more money, uh, or political gain, you know, political leverage on the, on the short term. This is trading off short-term gains for long-term trouble. And in this particular, uh, you know, this kind of short-term thinking exemplifies this gambler mentality that these regimes have had over the past few years, unfortunately, especially uh, the, the regime of Mohammed bin Salman. So this is what I think is really going to happen. And I'm going to be brief, but like, I mean, of course, brief as much as I can be, because this is, uh, th th this is such, such a deep topic. Most of the world's industrial nations, as a result of this oil crunch, are going to deepen investment into renewables. Uh, this is the lesson that a lot of Europe is get, uh, a lot of countries in Europe are getting. I'm not sure about the United States as different context, but I think at least in Europe, the the message that's coming is that we have to accelerate transition away from fossil fuels because we don't have our own fossil fuel supplies, uh, and we have to transition out of you know fossil fuels anyway because you know green economy, uh, you know climate crisis, etc. So this is going to compound, I mean, if, if, keep in mind, if, if I'm thinking in terms of, uh, if, if I am in Hamad bin Salman's shoes, this is not good for me because this is going to compound upon existing calls to divest from fossil fuels in order to tackle the climate crisis, which means that this is not like, this is probably the last time he can play this game because the next time a big crisis comes along, the world would have already, you know, uh, like significant portions of the world. I don't, I don't think the transition is going to be so sudden, but... Uh, you know, the game is going to get old after a while. Now, the transition is already underway, so I think it's just going to accelerate from here. 
to the to the extent where they become less and less important over time. Exactly. And keep in mind, of course, this is strategic for some countries. It's not just a matter of, you know, just another product. It's a matter, matter of their national security. This is something I'll also touch upon. I think that's most clearly exemplified by the situation Germany finds itself in today, um, that they've basically spent uh, decades, uh, at least a decade and a half, uh, making themselves more and more dependent on Russia. Um, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, uh, you know, you have this relationship going back all the way to Gerhard Schroeder, the former German can- chancellor who after leaving office, went to work for, you know, Russian oil and has a very close relationship with Putin. It's rooted in this in this kind of idea that Germany had of like engagement, changing, changing the behavior of these closed regimes through engagement and trade and economic interdependence, which now we see doesn't really work. It doesn't really work, not only because like this is what dictators do and they are basically, you know, like like the, the dictatorships are crisis factories. Uh, but also because you cannot, you know, you can, there is a geopolitical element about, uh, you know, the survival of the state or sort of survival of the regime that cannot, I mean, a country would rather, a state would rather be poor than not exist, is is what I'm saying. So I think there's um, an interesting miscalculation that Western democracies often make, uh, which is about rationality here, because um, the idea is basically, if we make our countries interdependent, then it would be irrational for either party to do something which would harm the other and therefore harm itself. And that's what Germany did by making itself interdependent with Russia. So it relies on Russia for its energy and Russia relies on it for money. Um, Only Russia went ahead and did something uh, incredibly self-destructive, which resulted in vast global sanctions um, and which you wouldn't have expected a rational actor to to carry out. I mean, I've been... uh, been kind of trying to understand uh, Germany's logic here. And uh, uh, to be honest, like some of the stuff I read has, has made some sense. I mean, from a socio socio-analytic or so, almost psychological analysis, uh, which is really the devastation that Germany really, like, like Nazi Germany caused in Eastern Europe and the number of, uh, you know, number of Russians, uh, Russian civilians that were devastated, uh, you know, areas of, of, of Russia that were depopulated, devastated, uh, because of German action, uh, and we we have to remember this has this 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 isn't a very long time ago. This is still within living memory for a lot of people, and so part of this part of this engagement through trade is really a, a German attitude that says that we don't want war again, uh, and I understand it in 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 that in that kind of context, in that kind of historical and, and you know social political context, but. Uh, realities are are something else, and uh, we've we've talked about this many times on this podcast and uh, and outside of this podcast on our on our private uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, dictatorships cannot be reformed through trade. Uh, the more you strengthen them, the more they take it as permission. Uh, but let me move on to the next point that I that I want I, the next consequence of this of this action uh, by Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed. Uh, I sense that the main problem that's going to happen uh, following this is that Western nations will learn that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are not reliable partners for energy stability. This is big, uh, in a sense that they this is this is them becoming that that means they're not an ally in the sense that they were in the past. So this relationship that used to be institutional is now you know contested and kind of transactional. Uh, and you know, for for the West, that's fine because the West will survive. 
But for countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which have their own geopolitical unsustainabilities and stabilities, uh, this is, you know, this is very questionable, uh, you know, uh, policy. Um, for the U.S. in particular, it's going to become increasingly difficult for any public figure in the United States, you know, like a congressman, etc., to take pro-Saudi positions. Uh, this compounds upon the Khashoggi, you know, the pro, the post-Khashoggi uh, fallout, which has, of course, consequences for their for their uh, PR. Uh, also, arts and culture, sports, you know, you know, typical typical avenues of soft power. It's going to be like really difficult for Saudi Arabia or and maybe increasingly the United Arab Emirates as well to kind of have that kind of soft power within the, within the UAE, at least publicly. Um, but also, I think I think. Something that we didn't really talk about, and I think not many people have talked about, is for much of the West, of course, we live in Europe, me and you, uh, and I live in Norway, a country which was occupied by the Nazis in, uh, in, in World War II. It wasn't devastated, it's not as devastated as other countries, but, it, but, but you know, even here, the real, you know, the, the Second World War still has this long shadow that you feel. You, know, you feel you, people actually feel that you know we don't want war, we don't want to go there again. So this thing, I mean, there's a lot of disgust with Putin for for dragging war into into Europe and Europe into war again. Um, and of course, uh, not mentioning that, of course, uh, there was war in, in in the Balkans, for example, for a long time. But at least for Western Europe, uh, there was this this kind of uh, peace dividend. You know, like they didn't really have to invest so much into their into their security. Uh, there was this assumption that, you know, this is unthinkable. War in Europe is unthinkable. So I think that these dictators uh, really did not understand and still do not understand the amount of resentment, absolute resentment that the, that many people in the West are harboring, harboring against them because they're price gouging during a time of crisis. And, and you know, this this resentment is going to feed into the, 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 the dynamics that we talked about, be it the... Uh, investment, you know, hastening investment into into green energy, uh, you know, not considering them to be allies anymore, you know, not not kind of institutional allies, but you know, kind of, you know, we we give we give and take, and also their inability to build soft power. So I want to come back to the idea you mentioned that the relationship has uh, gone from unconditional to transactional, but I'm going to come back to it the the long way because I think the seeds of that actually happened in 2011. Until then, you had this very unconditional relationship because there were not many complicators in the relationship. The The Arab world sold oil, the West gave it security. Um, 2011, you have this massive complicator in the form of um, a massive grassroots pro-democracy movement, uh, which gets crushed. And that puts the West in kind of a terrible position because it doesn't want to lose this relationship that it's had in terms of uh, you know political security, in terms of um, you know a strategic alliance against uh, extremist movements, in terms of energy security, but at the same time it can't bring itself to you know nakedly participate in the crushing of um, pro democracy movements. Um, and there are a lot of regimes, and I think Saudi Arabia and the UAE are the most prominent there. Who this was a massive wake up call. Um, that they realized, you know what, the US is actually not unconditional in this. They won't help us no matter what, and they won't help us to massacre our own people if it ever comes to it. Um, and ever since then, you've had them trying to do things like um, the whole attempt to pivot to China 
and uh, you know increasingly strike trade deals with the Far East in order to have a second guarantor of security. Um, they bought Russia in um, in Syria, and you know they tried to build a relationship there. But Russia isn't as powerful as the West. Um, and then you know the Trump years came along. Um, and you know you had with they they invested very heavily in Donald Trump because they thought this was an opportunity to roll back the clock. Um, you know you had all of those stories about Mohammed bin Salman's incredibly close relationship with uh, the what's he called the son-in-law Jared Kushner. Yeah, um, and then the Khashoggi murder, which was for a lot of relationships the final nail in the coffin. Um, people are still unable to roll that back. So now you have Joe Biden the US president, uh, still refusing to meet Mohammed bin Salman since his election. And um, all signs are that Mohammed bin Salman has taken this extremely personally. Um, he's very deeply offended by it and even outraged. He wants to be legitimized by the US president. He wants to shake his hand. He wants everyone to see that he can stand on an equal platform with him. Um, and what we've been seeing, particularly in the disinformation output, is that uh, MBS sees a lot of what's happening right now not as a, a strategic matter for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but as a personal matter and as some score settling. Yeah, this is this is a really interesting point that I think uh, I think I haven't seen many people discuss it, but from our analysis uh, and certainly from our you know really our information about who Mohammed bin Salman is, and really this is something that kind of explains his his behavior to to a large extent. Um, this is for him not really about the strategy, but about the snub. Uh, he feels almost personally insulted by, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, excommunication. Uh, you know, he's basically treated in many circles as a pariah. Uh, he's not welcomed, for example, in the White House. Uh, you know, Biden, when, whenever Biden wants to speak, he speaks to his, to his uh, father, to King Salman, rather than to Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and we've seen that, uh, in many cases, this thing that's happening right now with this, you know, trying to twist America's arm into normalizing some kind of, you know, some kind of gesture of normalizing MBS. Uh, you might think, okay, this guy has a strategy, but, you know, the strategy doesn't make sense. You know, we can, we can, we can even talk more about why it doesn't make sense because it's so short, short term focused. Uh, but I think it's really, we have to, we have to really consider that. Uh, Hamad bin Salman is not a disciplined actor, and for him, this is really about the snub. Uh, what's really interesting here is that Hamad um, bin Salman does not understand the world. He doesn't understand how the world works, and he doesn't understand soft power. Uh, so he's trying to twist the arm of the world into normalizing relations with him. But this is exactly why he's so reviled. I mean, the, the reason why he's reviled is because he thinks that he can force things to happen, uh, because he has money and power, and because he has oil. I don't think MBS has really understood that he cannot be rehabilitated. He's still he's still continuously trying to do a reset of 2018 when he was like, his his, his PR image was like, you know, uh, you know, uh, so impeccable, uh, especially on March 2018, when, you know, he, he made this highly publicized visit to the United States, and, you know, he was, he was treated as a hero, received as a hero. Um, it's come to the point where, you know, whoever engages him becomes problematic. Like, you know, if someone, if a politician or a, business, or a businessman embrace MBS, they themselves are delegitimized. They're, they're stigmatized. I don't think he, I don't think he fully grasped this, grasped this. And, and maybe one of the things that really 
uh, one incident recently that we actually tracked on this information, but also off that, uh, is the whole interview with the Atlantic. Uh, 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 maybe you can give a rundown of that. So at the start of March, the Atlantic magazine ran this really high-profile interview with MBS um, by Graham Wood, and it was very basically a very sympathetic interview that let him you know, use all of the standard lines that he likes to use, like being a reformer of a stubbornly pre-modern kingdom. Um, he got to use his line about seeing Israel as a potential ally, not as a friend, um, which is, I guess, very logical if they're a potential ally in crushing civil society. Um, he got to uh, emphasize Saudi Arabia's commitment to the OPEC plus framework uh, for stabilizing global energy prices, and OPEC plus means OPEC plus Russia. So this is um, a few days into the Russian war on Ukraine, and he's basically signaling that Russia are still our friends and don't expect us to cut ties with them. Um, and this uh, very softball interview, which you know talks about the failure of democracy in the Arab region and basically let him set himself up as the only alternative, his disinformation networks immediately ran with this. You know, thousands of fake accounts on Twitter posting quotes and excerpts only the thing is a lot of these quotes and excerpts were distorted or they were completely fabricated and the author of the piece Graham Wood noticed and he tried to clarify it and he basically got mobbed by the disinformation networks he was abused by them um he was uh you know called names and he was threatened I mean, this is MBS thinking that, hey, uh, I got this this high profile interview that's going to uh, change, you know, public perception of me. And then the person who interviewed him himself comes out and say, no, you're kind of stretching. Uh, you know, this is not really what the, what this is about. And so his disinformation engine, MBS's disinformation engine that was kind of making a big deal about this interview suddenly started attacking the very journalist who who uh who sat with him yeah and we thought it was a very softball interview he got to say everything he wanted and he was you know barely challenged but mbs reads this interview and thinks this isn't good enough yeah you know i only got 98 percent of the narrative yeah and and the but but that's the thing that's what what i mean when when i say he doesn't understand how the world works and he still thinks that he can twist someone's arm into becoming, you know, kind of getting back his PR image and, uh, you know, his, his, his image as a reformer and everyone is going to love him again or that he's going to like... Uh, but even when he gets, like you said, you know, like a kind of a softball interview, uh, you know, uh, buy it somehow, you know, if I just get the right interview or hire the right lobbyist. And I mean, he's just not getting it. Um, it's, but it was really interesting to see that... Um, he still messes it up. Uh, still not like st still not 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 uh, getting into his head. I do want to kind of pivot back to something that you mentioned earlier because it's also important, uh, uh, um, which kind of carries the same. And I think this is something that's also echoed in an in a in a piece that was written recently by Khaled Al Jabri. Uh, I think it was written in Foreign Policy magazine. Uh, argument that you gave, which is that. Uh, it's not that these countries, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, doubt America's protection of like security guarantee. Uh, America, like America, is still committed to the survival of the Saudi state and the survival of the Emirati state for you know for strategic reasons, geopolitical. It's 
uh, you know, is not going to do, uh, is not going to protect you in the way that Putin protected Bashar al-Assad. Uh, let, let's put it that way. Because Bashar al-Assad, for political reasons, etc., what they doubt, these regimes doubt, is the protection model. Uh, so the United States events since 2011, like if you are an Arab dictator and you saw 2011, and you saw what happened to Saleh of Yemen, to Mubarak in Egypt, a lot of these people, you know, if if uh, you know if you're an Arab dictator and you you know, Ahmed earlier you you walked us through like if if you know if the shit hits the fan, you know if it comes down to that, I want to be Bashar Egypt to Gaddafi in Libya, and then to Bashar al-Assad, you're like Bashar al-Assad is my role model. This is how the Bashar al-Assad. I want to be the guy who survives. Uh, you know, like even slaughters, massacres, whatever. But I want to be the guy who survives. So in a sense. This Putin-Assad relationship is nowhere Assad relationship. Uh, and this is like, you know, whatever criticisms we have in, of America, America's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the UAE is not going to be a Putin. This is the thing. I mean, this is why they still want, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, we want to be, we want to be friends with the West because the West provides these security guarantees, etc. But also, if things get really bad, then it's not the West that will save us. Uh, it's it's uh, it's someone like Putin. It's someone like uh, I, I mean, of course, they're also trying to reach out to China, but China's not. There's no there's no uh, uh, in that sense. Um, uh, you know, there's no uh, applicable model for China because China is is again it's mercantilist. It's not exactly uh, you know it's not an ex ex expansionist. So so this is this is really interesting because you know it it is uh, uh, it it does change. I mean, it does it does add another dimension to the relationship. But also, I mean, also one of the things that also happened post-2011 is really this reconfiguration of the security of the region. And we have seen this kind of rise of rivalry with, uh, I mean, of course, especially in the past few years, where you have this rise of rivalry between a Saudi-UAE and increasingly Saudi-UAE-Israeli uh, axis with this Iranian axis. Um, there's also countries like Qatar, for example, who are kind of like walking a fine line in between. It's not so much an ally of Iran, but it's also, you know, uh, uh, an adversary to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, and something really important happened with the current uh, crisis in Ukraine. And, you know, this oil, uh, uh, you know, uh, this energy crisis that came with it. And because uh, keep in mind, you know, what just happened and this oil crunch has really made... Country. So, of course, let's say that you're, you're Saudi Arabia and this kind of happens and you immediately tell, you know, America and Western countries, we got this. Uh, don't go speak to the Iranians. Don't speak to the Venezuelans. Don't speak to the Qataris. We got this. We're going to stabilize all demand. But this is not what MBS did. What MBS did is like, no, we're, you know, we're, I'm going to price gouge. As a result of that, and it was really only after that, you know, and after this, you know, as part of this frustration, that you, you saw America kind of uh, trying to rush through the Iran deal, trying to basically get Iranian oil on the market as soon as possible, trying to get Venezuelan oil on the market. And you've seen also uh, uh, Qatar's uh, you know, position being kind of uh, upgraded uh, because Qatar, of course, again, is, it's a major supplier of, 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 ga of, uh, of gas. Uh, and you've seen basically, uh, I think Germany sign uh, an important uh, trade deal uh, when it comes to energy supply, LNG supply from, from Qatar. So in a sense, MBS, you know, he kind of got, got his 
former friends who used to be his closer, closest allies to start to 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 uh, to reach out even more to be, to become even more warm or at least more accommodating for his his enemies, which is exactly the opposite of what he needs. Um, I I do want to mention as well. I mean, before before handing it to you, Ahmed, uh, a lot of what we're talking about right now, uh, this you know how this is basically short term. He's basically trading off short term uh, gain for uh, like real problems on the long term. Is something that actually was mentioned. I believe it was yesterday or a day before, um, um, uh, in a in an interview by Hillary Clinton, uh, and again we've seen the Saudi disinformation network jump on that, and you know in you know call her all sorts of names, because again I mean the the, the whole thing's like how how dare you say this is like th th there's no strategic sense there to say you know what uh, maybe we should we should actually respond in a strategic way. No, it's all basically, you know, MBS doesn't like this. So we've been saying this for years, but MBS may only be the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He remains the king of self-owns. Um, Jamal Khashoggi was a self-inflicted -inflict wound on his global reputation. So was his closeness to Trump and Jared Kushner. And the Iran deal was floundering and he probably gave it the biggest push to get it over the finish line. Uh, nobody else could have done that. Um, it was really him refusing to turn on the oil taps that enabled that to happen. So he just keeps on inflicting self-inflicted wound after self-inflicted wound um, and staggering onwards to do more. And it's it's really amazing how nobody's managed to stop this man yet um, because he's harming the interests of his own country in the long term. And keep in mind, by the way, I mean, he is actually deluded. I mean, keep in mind, he really believes he's a, he's a superpower. I mean, he actually feels like he's the king of the, king of the world right now. I mean, you're calling him the king of self-owned. He actually believes that he's the king of the world right now. And he he surrounded himself with people with people who reinforce this, you know, surrounded himself with the yes-men, uh, which is kind of something I was thinking about yesterday. Uh, how what's happening with Putin in Ukraine, I mean, this failure of Russia... Uh, this kind of catastrophic uh, situation they have, of course, catastrophic for Ukraine, but also catastrophic for Russia, uh, for Putin's you know hold on power. Um, doesn't it show what a bad and terrible? I mean, forget forget dictatorship as a governance system. Doesn't it show how bad dictatorship is as a management system? I mean, you don't like truth doesn't uh, doesn't flow to to you, so you can't make decisions, and so you end up taking really really bad decisions. We've seen it in Putin, who was supposed to be, you know, uh, his regime is, suppo is supposed to be a lot uh, more shrewd and more, you know, strategic and more uh, more powerful than, uh, than than something like Saudi Arabia, uh, and we're not we're seeing it again in Saudi Arabia as well. Yeah, I think the the Putin one is another one that shocked people and just how how terrible it was when this uh, invasion happened, which you know preparations have been happening very clearly and visibly for over six months you, know, you could see it from satellites and the u.s intelligence community was leaking expectations every few weeks about what he was going to do and when he was going to invade and then when it did happen it was so woefully underprepared so under equipped supply chains were so um unready to deal with the invasion that it's floundered to a halt against a, a much smaller opponent um and there's still you know questions over does Putin actually know how bad it's going? Is uh, is the information reaching him or are the people insulating him from it? Um, how bad is the army organized? Because clearly money has been spent on it, but that money is disappearing somewhere without the actual end equipment being purchased. 
Um, and, you know, we're seeing the same thing across Saudi Arabia's government. Yeah, and I want to pivot from this point towards looking at the future. I mean, if we, if we, uh, you know, part of what we, we've said and part of this, this entire analysis really saying that this is trading off short-term gain, even questionable gain for long-term problems. If we want to look at the long-term problems, what, what are they? Uh, and in, uh, to me, it's really that the next time a crisis comes along, and of course, like, you know, as you mentioned, Ukraine is kind of a self-inflicted wound on Putin. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, is is going through a very difficult transition. And it is in a very, like the whole region really is, is going through a very traumatic transition. And crises are going to come. The next time a crisis comes, we're going to see a lot of these unsustainabilities and, you know, those, uh, you know, short-term this short-term thinking and this kind of trade-offs and this kind of gambling mentality kind of really come to a head. And, you know, like, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting what you mentioned with, uh, with you know, with uh, 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 the corruption in, in, the, uh, in, in the Russian army, because this is something that kind of was a hidden problem. We, you know, it exists, but you don't, you know, it doesn't really become a serious problem until there's a war. Uh, similarly, just ju- if you just kind of think how many how many unsustainabilities exist in these countries that are hidden because there's no crisis, and once a crisis hits, that's when you know when, once when there's serious difficulty and there's all of this resentment comes in, the, all of this uh, you know uh, 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 you know everything that they have created to kind of harm themselves on the long term. The long term is going to come; it's going to catch up with them sooner or later. Well, that's what we've always said about these regional dictatorships, that they always look extremely stable and until very suddenly they collapse entirely. The peak of uh, the Mubarak regime's stability, arguably, was in late 2010. That's when it looked like he'd erased all domestic opposition. There hadn't been any notable challenge to him in years. Um, He was, you know, extremely secure on top of that pyramid, which suddenly turned out to have no foundations just a couple of months later. And it's really short-sighted not to think that MBS is doing this in Saudi Arabia right now. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do want to mention something. I, I think we're coming to the, to the, to the end of, uh, of our analysis, but I do want to mention something, which is that I've seen uh, some Saudi opposition figures uh, actually praise MBS for uh, this attempt to maximize all profit. Uh, the whole point, of course, is that you know this is good. You know this is our country showing showing leadership, showing uh, strength. And uh, yes, why shouldn't we make make more profit, get more money out of out of oil? Of course, keep in mind these are anti MBS people. These are people who are opposition figures. Um, and I have two things to tell them. Uh, the first is that this money is not going to the Saudi people. This money is going to MBS, and it's just going to make it easier for him to arrest your your friends, assault you, demolish your neighborhoods build a bigger PR engine, hack you, and bomb Yemen. This is not going to, it's not something to, to celebrate when a, when, a, when a dictator becomes more, more, more uh, you know, more wealthy. But also, keep in mind all of the above. I mean, in the end, we are, I mean, as, as uh, you know, Arab Spring activists or, you know, Arab democracy activists, uh, we don't want the collapse of, uh, of the Saudi state or the Emirati state. I mean, we are opposed to these regimes. Uh, but we we are we have no delusions about how catastrophic it would be if these states collapse. We've seen what the collapse of one state, Syria, uh, has has unleashed on the world. This is not because we want these countries' world, and we don't want to see that. I mean, ultimately, 
the reason why we oppose this figure, uh, you know, threats to, to these nations destroyed. It's, one, it's because we want these countries to, to thrive. Uh, and because we've, we see these dictatorships as threats to these societies. So I think we'll call it a day there, but there's an obvious place this conversation can continue, and that's the same divergence with the West happening with Israel right now, and we'll pick that up next time. Absolutely. I've always felt that, uh, you know, what's happening right now with Israel not being, for the first time, not being geopolitically aligned with the West is also worth an entire uh, conversation. Uh, It might even end up being an even longer conversation. Thanks for listening to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Episodes are currently releasing every other Friday, so if you're listening to this on release, catch you in another two weeks. If you're looking for something sooner than that, then check out our new podcast, Intergalactic Tarbush. It's a weekly short-form podcast where we talk about random things from social change in the public sphere to why Iyad hates koalas so much. You can support us by leaving us a review on whichever app you listen to your podcasts on or giving us a like on YouTube. You can also support us on Patreon, where our audience support plays a massive role in making sure our team at Kawakibi Foundation can keep doing what we do. Catch you next time.